Hello again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And you're listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist and gives the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. So, guys, right now we're in the middle of a three-part series about Asians in America. In our last episode, we interviewed Dr. Tu Quach, whose professional and volunteer work shows us the kind of change we can make if we lean into our communities. Tu's a leader in the One Nation AAPI movement, which started as a fight against the Trump administration's enhanced public charge rule, which you may recall is a policy harmful to low-income immigrants that was later rescinded by President Biden. Tu also is a founding board member of Pivot, the progressive Vietnamese American organization, and Pivot launched a website and videos under Viet Fact Check to fight disinformation in the Vietnamese American community. In short, we hope you listened to that episode, and if you didn't, you should listen to that one before you listen to this one, because Tu is a badass organizer. We want her story to inspire you to take action. So what we're going to do in this episode is analyze the tsunami of media coverage concerning Asian Americans this year. Starting in late January, there was a wave of coverage that was prompted by the street attacks on our Asian elders. And then another wave of media coverage came after the March 16th Georgia spa shootings. That killing of eight people, six of them Asian women, is the single worst act of violence upon the Asian American community since the COVID-19 pandemic started. And guys, you know, I'm not gonna front with you. This has been a very difficult time for me personally because I am Filipina American. I've been spending hours with Asians online. We've been gathering by the tens of thousands to cry, to honor our anger, to organize, and to get a sense of what we collectively need to move forward. And that experience is shaping the three-episode series in our podcast. Yeah, you know, um, I was, of course, here supporting and watching as, as you needed that extra time to grieve the loss of life and the loss to those families. And we both took stock of what's going on in this nation. And what we've heard over and over again is that Asian American history is not taught here. And as a result, America largely sees Asian Americans as foreign. So we're adding a third episode to this series that will fill in some of that gap. Yes. But for now, though, let's return to one of the main themes of this podcast, that news is just the first draft of history. As I said earlier, we started in late January with the public attacks on Asian elders. There was very little news coverage when this started, and people in the Asian American community were clamoring for more. Then the news coverage increased, but frankly, it wasn't that great. The news showed a fundamental lack of knowledge about Asian America and its relationship to other communities. And then, after the March 16th Georgia spa shootings, the coverage started to get deeper and more nuanced. So what happened between late January and today? It's pretty simple. Asian America spoke up and journalists listened. And this is a good thing because it shows how we can help write the first draft of our own history. So we're going to use the Atlanta spa shootings as a case study and go through those steps of how Asian Americans can influence their own media coverage. To be clear, the training that we're offering here can be used by anyone to form relationships with reporters, meaning it's not just limited to Asian America, right? Mm -hmm. And much like our last episode, we want this one to give you ideas for taking action in the future. So let's uh, start by going back to March 16th, the day of the Atlanta area killings. And, and to recap, um, 
this gunman went into three spas and killed eight people. At least one of those businesses are Asian-owned, and six of the victims were women of Asian descent. The initial news narrative was driven by the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department. Captain Jay Baker, who was the initial spokesman, repeated the killer's statement that these were not racially motivated crimes, but rather ones of sex addiction. Baker also described the killer's state of mind, and here is his quote, courtesy of WXIA in Atlanta. When I, when we, I spoke with investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and I, uh, they got that impression that, yes, he, he understood um, the gravity of it, and he was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope, and, um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. Later, it came out via a Facebook post that Baker had shared racist T-shirts that were printed with the term COVID-19 imported virus from China. And guys, I think you can see how this is problematic on so many levels. I mean, you've got this misguided belief that racism and sexual addiction are completely separate, right? You've got the tone deafness of saying that the killer had, quote unquote, a really bad day. And then you have these anti-Asian t-shirts promoted by the spokesman for the sheriff's department, which just raises the question of whether anti-Asian bias would prevent a good investigation by the Cherokee County law enforcement. So Asian America was in a total uproar and sprung into action. Um, So remember, the crime happened on March 16th. So on March 17th, CNN put out a story called Fetishized, Sexualized, and Marginalized Asian Women Are Uniquely Vulnerable to Violence. On March 18th, the New York Times had a similar story called How Racism and Sexism Intertwine to Torment Asian American Women. And then Vox came out with one on March 19th called the history of fetishizing Asian women. So all told, this is a pretty quick clapback on the notion that race and sexual addiction are separate, right? And so the question is, how did it get done? So first, you've got AAPI women, you know, Asian American Pacific Islander women writing these stories. So right off the bat, these women are gonna be more likely to have the firsthand understanding that sexual harassment is often racist for Asian women. And second, you have members of the Asian American community who spoke up pretty quickly. So an example is Songyeon Choi Moro, who is the executive director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. She was quoted in the CNN and the New York Times stories, and she also did an appearance on CBS this morning. And the message was the same. She was talking about hypersexualization as a form of racism against Asian women. Another way you can make sure that your stories get into the news is to talk about stuff on Twitter. Twitter is always a goldmine for news organizations. The New York Times story had this quote from Jen Fang, who's founder of the Asian American feminist blog Reappropriate. She wrote, people on here literally debating if this was a misogynistic attack against women or a racist attack against Asians. What if, wait for it, it was both. And, you know, it's not just this particular issue. News coverage got more nuanced in other ways. Another way to make sure that your story gets into the media is to write it yourself, right? The personal essay is a classic way of doing this. So take HuffPost's first person. They did a story. uh, There was a woman who did a story called, This is What No One Tells You About Being Asian in America in 2021. And this was something that uh, got passed around between me and my friends because it really struck a nerve, right? Um, 
And it discussed this. With the rise of racism against us related to COVID-19, there is an ever greater need for us as Asian Americans to speak out. But there is so much in our upbringing that prevents us from doing so. So the author of this piece was Sharon Kwan, and she writes, Our world minimizes us, and we minimize ourselves. She goes on about how we're taught not to talk back as kids, and the model minority myth pushes us to just, quote-unquote, behave and work hard, which just discourages us from rocking the boat or challenging the status quo. I'm going to give you one last example of better news coverage that gets into some difficult topics. So this is a New York Times story from March 20th by Brian Chen called There is No Rung on the Ladder That Protects You from Hate. And this story explains that Asian Americans haven't been big on solidarity in the past. After all, we come from more than 20 countries in the East, Southeast, and South Asia regions, and our countries have different cultures, languages, and political tensions. And plus, our demographic has the biggest divide in America when it comes to income. And Chen provides a historical uh, reason for this. You had the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 that brought in skilled workers and their extended families. And you also had the Vietnam War refugees. So this resulted in a population with a range of educational levels. Then the Immigration Act of 1990 brought in more higher skilled immigrants under the H-1B visa program. So because of this history, Asian America has its own internal class tensions, as well as tensions caused by relationships between our countries of origins. But as the title of the story indicates, racism and xenophobia don't care about these nuances. So this wave of hatred coming at us right now may be the push to bring the different camps of Asian America together. So let's summarize a bit, because writing better versions of the first draft of history doesn't just happen. Key to these stories is, number one, diverse newsrooms, as we've already talked about. When you have AAPI reporters, you're going to end up with better stories. And number two, when you're on deadline, you need quick access to community leaders, experts, and artists speaking out in a crisis. So the message here, if you guys want to influence your own media coverage, speak up often, speak up loudly, and reach out to reporters. But don't wait for a crisis. The best way to shape your own news narrative is to have established relationships with reporters before another wave of attacks. So the question is, how do you go about doing that? There are slightly different strategies for local news, national news, and ethnic news media. So let's start with local news. Now, generally, TV and newspapers will cover these types of stories in their communities. Number one, a local reaction to a nationwide story, such as, how is our Asian American community taking action amidst these awful attacks? Or number two, is there a local event that has good video or photos, like a cultural festival? Your local newspaper may provide a third type of additional coverage, like some sort of trend going on with Asian Americans. And there's also the op-ed pages where you may be able to submit a first-person piece. So the first thing you'll want to do is call each newsroom and ask how to send in news tips and press releases. I don't want to get into a lengthy discussion of how to write a press release because there are multiple sources online and they differ depending on what you're trying to promote. In general, be sure to include your contact information and quickly cover the basics. Who, what, where, when, and why. Now this is important. If you're trying to get something like a cultural festival covered by the paper, 
submitting this info is going to help you get listed on the community calendar and get a photographer and maybe a reporter to come out to your event. And if you do have local news come out, then you can chat with them and start to form a relationship. Yep. And the other thing you can do is study the reporters themselves. Are there any Asian American reporters you can network with? Or are there any reporters who cover the subject, what we call the beat, that you have an expertise in? So, for example, during the decade that I worked for the Fresno Bee in Central California, I held three different positions, meaning I worked three different beats. I started off covering Tulare County government, then I was moved on to the business desk, and finally I became the paper's food writer. So it's really important for you to target your story pitch as well. Reporters I talked to for this podcast episode say they get a lot of pitches that have nothing to do with their beat. And you're just wasting your own time and the reporter's time in this case, right? But on the other hand, if you do find a reporter whose beat fits your expertise, then you are golden. So go ahead and talk to them on social media, call them, and maybe you'll even be able to to get together for coffee. Because if you've got useful information for them, they will want to pick your brain for story ideas. Now, the same goes for specialized magazines and other publications and ethnic media, right? So be sure to study the outlets that you're interested in before sending pitches. There's just no sense in sending a pitch about educational issues affecting Asian America to a food magazine. Um, just like there's no sense sending a pitch that's strictly about Filipino Americans to Korean news outlets. I mean, this, this kind of makes sense, right, guys? And when it comes to national media, it can be even harder to get on the radar. So these reporters often are looking for prominent experts to interview. And one way to get in the pipeline is to work through AAJA. This is the Asian American Journalists Association. So these guys are doing something cool called AAJA Studio, which is a curated list of Asian American experts available to journalists for various topics. To be considered, you'll need five years of experience in your subject matter, news and video clips that show your comfort level with being interviewed on video, in print, and on audio, and you need to show that you are a reliable source. But if you fit the bill or you know someone who does, go ahead and nominate yourself and others. We will go ahead and put the link for AAJ Studio in the show notes. And something else you guys should look at is the AAJA Guide for Atlanta Shootings. This was so popular in the news frenzy after March 16th that AAJA's website actually crashed for the first time in years. But that particular guide is a good look at what reporters are seeking when they're writing about sensitive topics on deadline. And we're going to give you one final tip. This one is totally next level, you guys. Um, The advice is to form a pod of Asian American leaders in your local area and work as a team to make yourselves available to reporters. So Christopher Chan, who's an attorney and an advisory chair for the Asian American Action Fund Georgia chapter, is part of such a group that got super media savvy during the November 2020 election and then also during the Senate runoff races in January of this year. So when the Atlanta area spa shootings happened, he says the members of this little pod were able to say to one another, okay, you take this interview and I'll take that one. And they also were able to compare notes so they could come prepared to answer the tough questions and address harmful narratives very quickly. For example, you know, within a day after the shooting, 
Chan was interviewed by the Washington Post and CNN. So many, many thanks to Chris Chan for passing along that tip to us because it is just a super, super good idea. So guys, we got one more case study for you because this is one that has generated a lot of controversy and is near and dear to Ralph and I because we are a Blasian couple, Black Asian, right? And this is the media portrayal of tensions between the Black and Asian communities. So we're going to analyze some news stories here. The first one was sparked by the late January death of Vicha Ratanapakti. He was violently pushed to the ground in San Francisco and soon died of his injuries. More attacks on Asian elders quickly followed after that one. On February 3rd, Noel Quintana, a 61-year-old Filipino-American man, was slashed across the face in Brooklyn while waiting at the subway. And on the same day, a 64-year-old Asian grandmother was robbed in San Jose. She just left a bank with more than $1,000 uh, for the Lunar New Year celebrations, and she was getting ready to drive away when a robber stole her purse and took off. So it's against this backdrop that Juju Chang did an ABC Nightline special about the rising violence against Asian Americans. Now, this special had lots of valuable information in it, but there were two missteps that inflamed tensions between the black and Asian communities. You want to explain more, Ralph? Chang starts her piece with an introduction to Vichar Ratanapakti and the description of his death and the charges against the black teenager who killed him. Then she sets up the discussion of conflicts between black Americans and Asian Americans. In this clip we've chosen to play here, you're first going to hear Chang, then you'll hear a quote from Montanas Ratanapakti, that's Vichar's daughter, and finally you'll hear a quote from Eric Lawson, Montanas's husband. Here's the clip from the Nightline video. Even though no hate crime charges were filed, some in the community blame the tension between black people and Asian Americans. I think uh, they're targeting to the Asian American community. We need the black community to realize that, the, that black people are hurting Asians and they need to speak out of, uh, in their own community so what you have here are two quotes that are saying the same thing, that the anti-Asian hatred is a black Asian problem. Lawson is more descriptive than his wife, emphasizing the leap from black individuals who committed crimes to a generalization of black Americans. Yes, and there are two things that are harmful here. Number one, if the public treats this like a black Asian issue, Anyone who is not black or Asian may assume this is a problem that doesn't concern them. Just listen to Lawson's quote. He believes the black community needs to call out these attacks, but doesn't say anything else about any other race needing to step up to solve the anti-Asian hatred. And now it's possible that Lawson said we all need to step up, and this was a bad edit that presented him in this fashion. But either way, the framing that ended up in the Nightline piece is dangerous, because it's individuals of multiple races, ages, genders, and located all over the country who are attacking Asian Americans. So to get a better sense of this, click through the media reports of anti-Asian violence recently collected by the New York Times. Their April 3rd story is called, Swelling Anti-Asian Violence, Who is Being Attacked Where? Now, these are cases in which the assailants verbally express their racial animus towards their victims. 
In other words, these are attacks that we know were racially motivated. And the story traces them back to March 2020, close to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in America. The majority of these attacks have taken place in coastal cities with large Asian populations, but small towns have seen this violence too. Indeed, as the story shows, these attacks took place in almost every region of the country. And here's number two. If you are trying to recruit a group of people to your cause, as Lawson was trying to do, lecturing these people and making generalizations about them is just not the best way to get people to be on your side. And indeed, we saw the fallout and the reactions to this Nightline piece. But before we get to those, let's tell you what happened right after Lawson's quote. The video cut to the actor Daniel J. Kim. And Kim did say that the attacks on Asian Americans aren't just a Black-Asian conflict. That was followed by video clips of examples. And then there was a discussion about the historical tensions between Asian Americans and Black Americans. Later on in the piece, the Nightline episode also pointed out examples of Black Americans and Asian Americans coming together in solidarity to rally against racism and xenophobia. So like we said earlier, there was a lot of good information in Chang's reporting, but the initial framing of this as a Black-Asian conflict delivered in a way that enforced stereotypes exacerbated a painful situation. And a number of folks, ranging from our podcast listeners who tipped us off to this episode, to people commenting online, couldn't get past that initial framing. So I'm going to read some of the comments posted on YouTube about this episode. Can't you guys see that the media is trying to make us hate each other? Here's another one. It's kind of funny how ABC is trying to use this narrative of black people versus Asian people, yet as far as I can tell, they haven't interviewed one black person in the whole story. And here's an exchange that alludes to the model minority myth, which pits Asian Americans against black people and Latinx people. And we're going to address that myth in our next podcast episode. The quote goes like this. As Asian myself, I get what they're saying because I've been racially bullied by black people a lot since I was young, and some of them sometimes think that the Asian community is also privileged and part of the reason for violence or any disadvantage against black people, while what we Asians did was just study hard and put a lot of effort into our lives while trying to avoid causing any troubles in the society. And here was the response from a black person. I understand, but it doesn't mean all black people, does it? We need to move away from stereotyping based on colors. The black people you met in your life don't constitute all black people in the U.S. The same thing for the white guy who went and killed the ladies at the spas in Georgia. I don't hear the media saying, quote unquote, white people tension against Asian. It's always when it's about minorities that these labels are being used. And guys, from a reporter standpoint, man, this type of feedback is not good. So what is a journalist to do? Here's the bottom line. In my previous career as a reporter, there have been times when people I interviewed said stuff that was pretty inflammatory, and I would have to make decisions of whether to include or not include these quotes. And if I knew they'd just distract my readers from the rest of the story, I'd cut them. If I were the reporter here, I would have cut Lawson's quote and kept his wife's. Lawson's not adding any point here that his wife didn't already make. Yeah, that's true. The second item that we noted was Chang's use of the term the talk when she was speaking to Congresswoman Grace Meng from New York. Um, They were discussing Meng talking about these issues with her kids. 
And what Chang did here is she equated it to the talk that black Americans need to give to their children about being out in society. Here is the clip again from that Nightline interview. I know you have children. Uh, you know, I'm a mom too. What do you say to them? I said, look, you know, this is what's going on. There are people in this country who will take a look at you and without knowing anything about you, may call you something that uh, is derogatory, may even try to cause harm to you. It strikes me that this is the Asian equivalent of the talk that African-American parents often have to have with their children. So it gets a little problematic to reach for this comparison. And we want to take some time here to explain why, because this is an important point. And there is a need to have these discussions with the children, especially for, for Asian-American parents who may not have had discussions about being aware of surroundings in the same way before. They need to understand what's going on. That's important. But how using it and referring directly to the talk can tend to flatten the depth and length of the historical wariness, pain, violence that comes with that term in the African-American community. Because the talk is not just about dealing with society. In fact, that's kind of a secondary element. That talk is primarily about how to deal with the enforcement arm of the state, how you act when you are confronted with the police. Now, we thought Representative Andy Kim said it best when he was describing his five-year-old son's first encounter with anti-Asian bullying. Kim has a thread that's pinned to the top of his Twitter feed, and we're going to share it in our show notes. We're going to be sharing a lot of things in our show notes to, for this one, folks, which is well worth it. There are two parts of the thread that we think speak best to this. Here's the first part. Uh, Jonathan K., part of the Washington Post, asked me, Representative Kim, if my parents ever gave me the talk and if I would do that with my kids. The racism AAPIs face is different from the black community, so conversations would be different. But I started to think about how I should talk to my kids. And here's the second tweet that we like. Uh, stand for all. I will teach them the names of George Floyd along with Hyung Jung Grant, who is the Korean-American mother killed in Atlanta. The type of racism and discrimination that AAPIs face is different from other communities of color. We have different types of talks, but we stand up for all. Yeah, you know, I was so glad to see that Twitter thread from Representative Kim because it was so nuanced. But to drive Andy Kim's point home about different types of talks with Asian Americans and black Americans, we're going to interrupt our media analysis here with a deeply personal story. So a few years ago, Ralph and I, we were in Seattle for a conference. And um, I remember this was on a weekend. Ralph was already at the convention center on the show floor. And I was walking by myself from the condo that we were renting over to the convention center. Um, I remember it was a pretty overcast day, um, pretty rainy actually, kind of raining on and off. And um, it wasn't super crowded, but because of the rain, uh, some of us were sort of huddled um, trying to, to walk under an overpass or scaffolding, if I remember correctly. And it was at this point where I accidentally bumped a man, a white man, uh, and that's relevant to the story, and um, totally triggered this crescendo 
So this man started stalking me. He was walking behind me, shouting incessantly, had all sorts of rambling arguments, and they were just punctuated by slurs. He called me a gook, called me a bitch. He called me the N-word. And I very immediately realized that I was in some danger here. So, you know, the light changed and I turned into the crosswalk. So I was able to at least get across the street from him. So now we're walking parallel to each other, right? Towards the convention center. And this man just kept yelling louder and louder at me. Um, And this being a weekend, uh, there's not a lot of, of doors that were open. This was like, you know, in the morning. So most of the doors were locked. There was really not many good choices for me in terms of places to go. So I stopped in front of a clothing store, hoping that the door would be open and it was still locked. And at that point, the man's standing directly across the street from me and he's leaning, looking like a mad dog, pulling on a chain and yelling at me louder and louder. And I was really scared because now there's no good options for mistake for, uh, for escaping. Um, and so I called Ralph and he's on the show floor and he picked up the phone and I basically said, honey, I'm in trouble. I need your help. Please come, please come for me right now. And I remember I said that twice and my voice got more panicky. Um, and this man is still screaming at me. Um, and by just by luck, somebody opened the door to that shop and I was able to slip inside and just praying that the man would not come after me. Uh, and at that point, you know, Ralph had to call me back because he's like, I need to know exactly where you are. <laughs> and in my panic, I hadn't even been able to tell him that. Yeah. So, Ralph, you can pick up the story from here. Yeah, and understand that the, um, the layout of what we're talking about. And folks who are from Seattle or have been to Seattle several times will kind of understand this. I'm in the Seattle Convention Center, the Washington State Convention Center. Um, fourth floor is where the exhibits were, the top floor. And we had stayed at a condo near Pike Place. So it's a seven-block radius. So I knew she was fairly close. And since she was on her way to the convention center, I'm figuring five minutes tops, three if I run. So as soon as I hear, I need your help, I'm leaving the convention floor, going down the escalators and trying to get your location so I know where to go. Now, I went down with two intentions, to make sure you were safe. And if I had to confront this guy physically, to try to subdue him in five minutes or less. Because I knew while on my way there, I could not be seen as a large black man on the scene beating up a white man, no matter what had happened leading up to the event. I could get a bullet in my back from a policeman off that profile, off that site alone. And I even had to think about how I walked from the convention center down to the clothing store just so no one in the downtown area would make an assumption based on my size and how aggressively I was walking. And I even thought about this understanding the way I was dressed, which of course was at a convention. I had on dress shoes, I had on slacks, and a buttoned-up shirt. But I still understand that how I looked, my size, and me being a large black man, people make perceptions all the time. So I'm thinking about both of these things as I'm approaching the location of the shop where you were. And that, that's, you know, I, I, it's the dynamic that had to be in my mind the whole time. Yeah. And so it wasn't until later that I realized um, just how much my husband's life could have been in danger. At that point, I was thinking just street level violence, which is what Asian Americans are facing across America today. Mm-hmm. Right. 
But by calling Ralph and having him come out there to help me, I've now introduced this whole new dynamic of what if the police come and they see him trying to pull a white man off of me or tackle a white man to, to you know, prevent him from harming me further. And that level of will the cop shoot my husband, that's what we're talking about with the talk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So back to Chang's Nightline episode. Remember how we talked earlier about the importance of diverse newsrooms? When there are people on staff of varied cultural backgrounds, you can run stories by each other before making mistakes like misrepresenting the black American version of the talk on air. So we wonder, did she have a black colleague she could run this by? And if she did and that consultation didn't happen, how do you open that communication to avoid a mistake like this in the future? And I know this seems like a little thing, but it's really not, because hundreds of thousands of people have seen this Nightline piece just on YouTube alone, you know, let alone television. And now we're hearing others equate the Asian American version of the talk with the black American version of the talk. I mean, Ralph, you were recently in a clubhouse stage telling folks to be careful about this comparison, lest they come across as trying to flatten or minimize the black American experience with law enforcement. And what was cool was that there was an Asian-American activist who works with black activists who totally agreed with you. This reaction and this whole concept was not foreign to her at all. Yeah. So in short, the missteps in this Nightline episode were unfortunate because it was otherwise a well-reported episode with a lot of good information. But judging from the reactions that we've heard to it, some viewers missed the full scope of the piece because they were upset by these two details that we pointed out. So let's get to our second example, which is about Fox News. In the days after the Georgia spa shootings, I conducted a little experiment. Every time I saw a report about violence against Asian Americans on a major cable news channel, I'd go ahead and check the others just to see what they were saying. And I repeated this experiment several times a day. So CNN and MSNBC provided extensive coverage, but Fox News didn't. Most of the times that I checked on Fox, it was showing stories about the people seeking asylum at our southern border. And finally, Ralph spotted a story online that addressed anti-Asian violence. So Fox News had avoided the tragic murders in the Atlanta area for several days, but then had a segment in which author Ying Ma insinuated that, among other things, Vice President Kamala Harris needed to go to Oakland to make a speech denouncing black on Asian violence, a blanket speech. The second point she made, well, I'm going to let you hear it for yourself now, courtesy of Fox News. The second thing is actually to encourage all Chinese Americans to come out and denounce China for the role that it has played in infecting the world with COVID-19. Um, and along with that, the Biden administration needs to be very firm in holding China mm -hmm. accountable for having done this to America and having done this to the yeah. world, no country. Now, there's just so much to unpack here, but we want to practice what we preach. And our second rule about the news applies here. Consider all sources critically. So, Ying Ma has worked for two conservative organizations in the past 10 years or so. The one she's with now is called the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute for Conservative Women. Claire Booth Luce was an accomplished journalist and author, and she was also stridently anti-communist. She was part of what they called the China Lobby back in the 50s and 60s, when China fell to communist rule 
these folks from the China lobby essentially were in favor of Chiang Kai-shek and in favor of over trying to overthrow Mao Zedong's rule overtaking of, of China. Her second husband was Henry Luce. He was the owner of Time Incorporated, which owned Time and Life magazines, to name a few. Sports Illustrator would be another. Now, before she worked for the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, or worked with the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, Ying Ma worked with the Hoover Institute. We've talked about the Hoover Institute in the past. They are a old-school conservative think tank based out of Stanford University. So you get an idea of where her politics lay, and you get an idea where the money behind these institutes want to shape the narrative. It's another reminder of how the money is always looking to shape the narrative behind any event. Always follow the money, guys. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's one of the most important rules. So that wraps up our first two episodes in our three-part series on Asian America. To recap, we gave you guys great ideas for taking back the news narrative and fighting disinformation from our interview with Dr. Tu Quach in our last episode. And in this episode, we analyzed the news coverage prompted by crimes against Asians in America and gave you tips on how to work with reporters to write the first draft of history. Next up is our final episode where we're going to take a look back at history and also talk about a path forward. The Asian Americans have a much deeper history in this country than is commonly discussed. So we want to highlight that and also highlight historical events in which Asian, Black, and Latinx communities worked together in a common fight for rights and representation. And we want to finish it up with ways to use this history and analysis to move forward and fight the battles that are just ahead. Remember, you guys, we want to take your questions, so drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on X, Y, or Z? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. And we're going to have more ways to engage with you coming up soon, including on Clubhouse. We have a new club there called Catch Me Up to Speed. And we're going to have a discussion about these episodes when the three-part series is finished. Follow us on Twitter at Catch Me Up to Speed. That's the number two. Catch Me Up number two speed for the details on when that will all take place. And as always, thanks for spending time with us today, guys. Talk to you again soon.